Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are pleased to host Professor Matthew Hakanos. Professor Hakanos is chair of the Department of History at Skidmore College in New York. Professor Hakanos is the author of A Church Divided, German Protestants Confront the Nazi Past, and has written extensively on Christian-Jewish relationships, anti-Semitism, Nazi Germany, Protestantism. And today we'll be discussing Professor Hakanos's fascinating page-turner. Then they came for me, Martin Niemöller, the pastor who defied the Nazis. And we'll get right to it. A little bit about your background and how you became interested in Martin Niemöller. Okay. So... I earned a BA and a PhD in history, and my focus was always modern European history and specifically 20th century German history. Um, As an undergraduate, I took an intellectual history class where I read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's prison notebooks, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a colleague of Martin Niemöller, um, and so I became sort of intrigued in Um, German church history, even as an undergraduate. And then as a graduate student, I wrote a dissertation on how the German Protestant church was coming to terms with its complicity in the Nazi era between 1945 and 1950. So I was looking at the post-Holocaust period and how the church was coming to terms with its own role in the Nazi era. And then that dissertation ended up um, finding its way into a book form um, and, and a key player sort of in the coming to terms with the Nazi past um, in the German Protestant church was Martin Niemöller. In fact, he was kind of very central in the efforts to get the church to uh, recognize its responsibility, its complicity in the Nazi era. He didn't have a whole lot of success, but he was uh, a strong voice on reforming the church after 1945. And so it's hard not to be interested in Martin Niemöller. Um, as you probably grasp from the biography, he has um, a fascinating history. Born in 1892 and doesn't die until 1984. That means he's 92 years old and lived through all these fascinating moments in German history. So when I sort of came into touch with him during the book on the post-war church, um, I thought, someone has to write a biography about him. And there are some biographies, but two of them were published in 1956. So he wasn't even, he was still alive. And the other was published in 1984, the year he died. And so I thought it was time for a new one. What were the early influences that shaped Martin Niemöller? So as I mentioned, he was born in 1892, which means he was born into the German Second Empire. It was a monarchy, very conservative authoritarian monarchy, and his family was very dedicated to the monarchy. Um, He was Protestant and Prussian through and through. He believed very strongly in the... um, alliance of the throne, the monarchy, to um, the altar, the church, and this was a big part of German history during the 19th century and the 20th century, was this alliance of throne and altar. And his father um, was a Lutheran pastor in the small town of Lipstadt in Westphalia, uh, northwestern Germany. And so Niemöller grew up in this atmosphere of nationalism and Protestantism. 
Um, after he graduated from high school, he went to the um, German Naval Academy to become a German Naval officer. So he studied in the Naval Academy from 1910 until 1913. Once he graduates, World War I begins, and he serves in World War I as a U-boat commander. When Germany loses the war in 1918 and the monarchy is overthrown by German leftist forces, Niemöller is um, sort of besides, beside himself. He's disillusioned with living in Germany. He contemplates moving to Argentina even to become a sheep farmer. Um, because he was so upset at the um, loss of the German monarchy. It was replaced by a liberal, democratic, socialist-leaning republic. Um, so he immediately became an opponent of the republic um, and found his way into various right-of-center and in some cases far-right organizations. He supported and even fought on the side of a Fry Corps, which are these... Um, paramilitary units that opposed the Weimar Republic. During the 1920s, he also um, supported the Nazis um, and other far-right organizations. Uh, so his, his background is very much nationalist, militarist, and uh, conservative nationalist Protestantism. Um, he spent most of his period during the Weimar Republic um, opposing the Republic on different levels, he left the Navy in 1919 because he didn't want to serve in a Navy that was under the command of a liberal government. And so he went to uh, divinity school and um, was ordained a Lutheran pastor in 1924. So he spends some of the Weimar period as a pastor. In 1931 is a significant year for him because he was offered a pastorate in a suburb of Berlin called Dahlem. And he took up that pastorate in 1931, moved his family from the west part, western part of Germany to the eastern part of Germany. And so when the Nazis come to power in 1933, he's serving in this very important pastorate in Berlin. You had mentioned that um, Mueller was a supporter of some kind of, of Nazi regime initially. How did he evolve from a supporter of Nazism of Hitler into an opponent? Yeah, that's a very good question. So in when Hitler came to power in January 1933, um, Niemöller was ecstatic. This is what he had hoped for. Um, he believed that the Nazis would return Germany to um, a great country again. He thought that during the Weimar Republic, Germany had appeared weak and indecisive. And although the monarchy wasn't coming back, um, Hitler and the Nazis still represented a sort of conservative nationalist outlook that he liked. So um, in an election that took place, the last free election in Nazi Germany in March 1933, he voted for the Nazis, indicating to everybody that this is where he stood. So how then does he become, you know, the pastor who defied the Nazis? How does he become an opponent of the Nazis? Well, fairly quickly, he began to observe a tendency among the party members and Hitler that was um, anti-church, he believed. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis supported a particular faction within the German Protestant church. This faction is confusingly called the German Christians, 
the German Christian movement was first and foremost Nazi and only secondarily Protestant. But they were a growing number of Protestants within the German Protestant church. And Niemöller opposed them for various reasons. Um, first of all, they were sort of upstart opportunists who were taking advantage of Hitler coming to power to try to take over the church. Um, but he also opposed them on some theological grounds. The um, German Christians, for example, wanted to bar from the church all pastors who had any Jewish ancestry. Now, there weren't too many of those, but the problem with barring pastors of Jewish ancestries, in other words, Christians uh, of Jewish descent, was that they were baptized Christians. And so if you were to ban them, you would be undermining one of the you know, sacred tenets of Christianity, um, one of the sacraments of baptism. So we opposed it for that reason. Um, the German Christians wanted, for example, to um, worship an Aryan Jesus, literally. They wanted to ban the Old Testament. They wanted to remove all Jewish influences from the church. And even though Niemöller was not ecstatic about all the Jewish influences in the church, he nevertheless defended them, defended the Old Testament. He defended the Jewish, um, the Jewish Jesus, and he opposed any attempt to, to impose a racial litmus litmus test on um, access to the church. So the Nazis supported this group called the German Christians. Hitler in particular even went on the radio during church elections in July of 1933, um, encouraging people to support this faction within the church. And he was successful during the July 1933 elections. A lot of German Christians were elected and took over many of the leadership bodies and the leadership positions of the church. This meant that the former more established, more traditional, more conservative uh, leadership of the church um, was shunted aside as the German Christians took over. And at least in certain places, the German Christians imposed um, this racial criteria uh, for access to the church or membership in the church. And so this violated some of the most basic ideas of Christianity. And so Niemöller's opposition to the Nazis was primarily geared towards Nazi church policy, was opposed to the Nazis' church policy, while he remained somewhat supportive of other aspects of Nazism. He didn't oppose Nazi foreign policy or other aspects of Nazi domestic policy, and he didn't voice criticisms of Nazi racial policy towards Jews, only towards Christians of Jewish descent. And so these conflicting conflicting groups within the Protestant Church in Germany, what was the uh, PEL confessing church movement? Was that the opposition to the yes? So yes. So what happens is in uh, the, the elections take place in July of 1933, and a lot of German Christians are elected to different churches all over Germany, and they begin to take over the leadership. So Martin Niemöller and his younger colleague, also from Berlin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, found what's called the Pastors Emergency League, shortened as PEL, um, in September of 1933. And the purpose of PEL is to remind pastors and to support the pastors who want the church to remain the church, who want the the 
message of the church to orient to have its um, origin in Holy Scripture and the Reformation confessions and not in some Nazified version of Protestantism. So the Pastors Emergency League had a pledge. It was a four-part pledge that talked about remaining um, adhering to the Reformation confessions and the Holy Scriptures, and people would sign this pledge. And and the fourth um, part of the pledge um, also committed members of PAL to oppose what they called the Aryan paragraph in the church. And that was this racial criteria that the German Christians wanted uh, for membership in the church. So the PAL was a, um, an impressive organization. Uh, there are approximately 16,000 pastors in Germany and about 7,000 within the next month or two joined PAL, indicating there was a significant number of pastors who supported Martin E. Muller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's vision for the church and who opposed the interference of the Nazis in the church. Um, the PAL sort of evolves um, later on into the confessing church. And if you want an official date for the founding of the Confessing Church, it would be May 1934, when Karl Barth, a giant in 20th century German theology, among others, drafted a famous declaration called the Barman Declaration of Faith. And this particular declaration reinforced the idea that it was the Protestant pastorate's job to preach according to the Holy Scriptures and the Reformation Confessions. That's where the Confessing Church gets its name from the Reformation Confessions that they're going, um, and that they were going to oppose all this false doctrine that the German Christians had brought into the church. And so this is a real decisive moment. Pell um, develops into what's known now as the Confessing Church, and the Confessing Church and Pell begin to operate in a sense, parallel to the official German church, which is under the leadership of the German Christians. And so you begin to see sort of a schism developing within the church. And now you have kind of formal organizations and doctrines indicating uh, that the schism has uh, um, a reality to it. Did Niemöller's theological opposition to Nazi Germany and what Nazi Germany was trying to do to the church, to that extend in defending non-Protestant Christians? Um, well, let me just start with uh, who it absolutely did not defend. I mean, so Niemöller's opposition to Nazism, as his famous confession um, indicates, he did not come to the defense of communists. He did not come to the defense of socialists, trade unionists, Jews, the incurably ill. Um, and the Pell and the Confessing Church was primarily and in a, in a sense, you know, only a Protestant movement. The Catholic Church had signed a concordat um, with the Vatican uh, in uh, 1933. And so they had sort of a different relationship to Nazism. Um, the Nazis had signed a concordat with the Vatican. Uh, and this relationship was uh, just far different from what the Protestants were dealing with. Um, but for example, Jehovah Witnesses were also arrested um, during this period from 33 to 37 before Niemöller um, is thrown in a concentration camp. And he was silent when they were arrested as well. Um, so for the most part, 
the church opposition led by Niemöller was a defense of the German Protestant church and German Protestants and not others. I will say that there's one moment that we should recognize, a very important moment, is that um, the confessing church uh, did um, criticize Nazi anti-Semitism in 1936 in a document that's not as well known as other aspects of the church struggle, they had written a secret or a confidential memorandum to Hitler in June of 1936. And in it, they condemned Nazi anti-Semitism. And I have a a sentence from it here that I'll read um, from the document from June 1936. Uh, It says, when Nazi anti-Semitism, which binds one to hatred of Jews, is imposed upon the Christian, then the Christian commandment to love one's fellow human stands opposed to it. So I think that this is a very strong and commendable statement, but it's also problematic because what they're condemning is anti-Nazi anti-Semitism when it's imposed upon Christians. Um, And what it doesn't do is it doesn't really condemn anti-Semitism more generally. And it most certainly doesn't condemn what I would call Christian anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism, which itself was a big driver behind anti-Semitism. Christian anti-Semitism refers to this notion that um, of sort of Christian supersessionism, Christian triumphalism, that um, when Jews failed to recognize Christ as the Messiah, that they were discarded by God, that he replaced them as he replaced Christians as the chosen people and rejected the Jews as the chosen people. Uh, the New Testament replaced the Old Testament and so on and so forth. This is pretty standard Christian thought prior to the Holocaust. And by failing to condemn condemn that, they were, I think, undermining their condemnation of Nazi anti-Semitism. Although Nazi anti-Semitism was a thing of its its own in a certain sense, it also relied on this much more common Christian anti-Semitism that most Germans would have heard when they go to church uh, every Sunday. So, So Niemöller, for the most part, was defending... Protestants in the German Protestant Church um, and failed for the most part to condemn other aspects of Nazism. But there were moments um, when he and other pastors within the Confessing Church uh, made some commendable statements um, that were uh, statements that would um, infuriate Hitler and the leadership of the Nazi Party um, and perhaps um, had something to do with him being arrested in 1937. Speaking of that, you, you, you write in the book that uh, Niemöller was arrested and became Hitler's personal uh, prisoner. Um, why was he arrested? What does it mean he was Hitler's? I, it seems that it speaks to his prominence at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah so it's interesting. Um, why, why did that happen? And what was his experience in the uh, concentration? Yeah, so Niemöller really got under the skin of Nazi leaders. 
Um, if you read through uh, Joseph Goebbels' diaries, the minister of propaganda and an absolute um, rabid anti-Semite, um, he frequently is 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 irate about Niemöller. So Niemöller um, is uh, um, accused of using his pulpit in Berlin for political reasons. And one of the things Niemöller did was from the pulpit, he would occasionally um, criticize the Nazi leadership. He would do it in a somewhat roundabout way by saying, you know, the Nazi leadership has um, not kept up to its promises. And he was referring to the fact that in 1933, Hitler agreed to more or less leave the churches alone and not to interfere in their business. And so when he did, this led to Niemöller's opposition. And so Niemöller would say things like this publicly. He would also name um, the pastors and Christians who had been arrested from the pulpit, which was something he was not supposed to do. So on July 1st, 1937, um, the Gestapo arrive at his house while his wife and his kid and him are having breakfast and they arrest him. And they take him first to Alexander Plotz, the Gestapo headquarters. And after a short interrogation there, he's taken to Moabit prison in downtown Berlin. And this is when he realizes that the typical arrest where he might be interrogated for two or three hours was not happening and that he was being held. And so he remained in Moabit prison in Berlin for approximately eight months. And then he was tried in um, a trial in February of 1938. And oddly, he was found pretty much innocent. Um, he was found guilty of one charge of using the pulpit for political reasons. He was fined a certain number of marks. He was sentenced to seven months in prison, which he had already served. And so he was released. Um, as he left the courthouse to return to the prison where he was going to pick up his belongings, when he arrived at the prison, Hitler and Goebbels, who had been back and forth with one another on the phone, had agreed to get in touch with Heinrich Himmler, who arrested him um, as he was at the returning to the prison to collect his belongings. And then they um, took him um, through the back door, actually, uh, to Sachsenhausen concentration camp in Berlin. Um, and Sachsenhausen concentration camp was a whole nother matter from um, Moabit prison. Um, his experience in Sachsenhausen lasted from 1938 until 1941. And it was a really miserable experience for him. He was allowed to write some letters back and forth now and then. He was allowed a couple, he was allowed visitors, um, his wife every few weeks, but he was held in solitary confinement. His cell was very small, very sparse. He was lonely. He was depressed. His health deteriorated. Um, he was not in good shape. Um, at a certain point, he felt like the Protestant church in Germany had abandoned him to a certain extent. He contemplated um, converting to Catholicism. He ended up not doing that. While he was in Sachsenhausen, his father died. Um, so there's just a lot of things that were very difficult for him. Um, in July of 1941, they transferred him and a lot of other high-ranking Catholic and Protestant clergy from all over different concentration camps to Dachau. Um, and so from 1941 until 1945, he was housed in Dachau, which of course is a notoriously horrible concentration camp. Um, but oddly enough, 
Niemuller's um, life in Dachau improved immensely. He was housed on a wing with other prominent prisoners, several of whom were Catholic hierarchy in the German Catholic Church. And they were allowed to move about from one cell to another, uh, walk up and down the hallway. They could play cards in a particular room. They consecrated a cell as a chapel so they could have um, various types of services. Um, sometimes they would, people would deliver um, food to them. They could use a library. So his life just improved immensely in Dachau, which is a strange thing to say, but it did. And his mood uh, improved um, greatly. He's a very outgoing guy, very personable, wants to be talking to people, communicating with people. So this really did a lot for his um, uh, his his sense of self and and his mood. Um, Dachau housed at this time in a certain area, a lot of prominent prisoners. So some German generals who had fell out of favor with Hitler were housed there. Uh, the former premier of France, Leon Blum, was there. The former chancellor of Austria was there with his family, his wife and his young daughter. So there were a lot of prominent prisoners held in Dachau. And I think the idea was that, is that Dachau is in the south of Germany. It's only a small trip to get into Austria or northern Italy, which is um, a region um, where where the Alps exist and that they might be able to use these prisoners at some point to to um, negotiate with uh, the Americans eventually. So his experience in the concentration camps, therefore, is mixed. Um, he was obviously being in a concentration camp is is a horrible existence no matter where you are. But he, it did improve once he got to Dachau.